Good morning, everyone. Um, as Wes pointed out, today is uh, Palm Sunday, and that passage that he read from Matthew chapter 21, it's um, a very important event in the ministry of Jesus, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and it uh, traditionally marks the beginning of Holy Week that begins on Palm Sunday and goes throughout the week. Friday, of course, is Good Friday, and then next Sunday is Resurrection Day. Um, but there's uh, one big theme that really shines through that passage in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and it's the fact that Jesus is king. Just uh, notice a few things here with me. Um, the, the citation in verse 5 of Matthew 21 from Zechariah 9 and verse 9, Behold, your king is coming to you, mounted on a donkey. And then there's the king's exercise of eminent domain over the donkey and the cult. There's the response of the crowd in spreading cloaks on the road and uh, palm branches, gestures consistent with the presence of a king. And then even the cry of the crowd, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Well, the son of David that they were expecting is a king. The one who would rule from David's throne forever and ever and ever. And so this whole event screams, it shouts the fact that Jesus Christ is king. Which begs the question, if Jesus Christ is king, and he is, he was king at the triumphal entry, frankly, he was king at his birth, that's why the wise men came and uh, presented uh, gifts to him as the newborn king of Israel, and as we're going to see, he, he continues to be king. He's king today. And if that's true, if Jesus is king, then what is he doing now? What is King Jesus doing here and now? And it turns out that the Bible has a lot to say about that. So today we're going to let our fingers do the walking um, I realize that the thing, let your fingers do the walking, that's, that's a, a slogan, an advertising slogan for the yellow pages. Exactly, right. So sorry, I'm betraying my age, um, but we're going to borrow an advertising slogan from yesteryear and let our fingers do the walking, not through the yellow pages, but through the pages of the Word of God uh, to, to see at least seven things that the Bible has to say about what King Jesus is doing now. And whatever, whatever we see today, uh, it's just a sampling. There's a lot more that could be said, but we'll limit ourselves to these seven. So what is King Jesus doing now? I've already alluded to this. He's ruling from his throne in heaven. He's ruling from his throne in heaven. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, where we're told long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now listen to the second half of verse 3. After making purification for sins, this son sat down 
at the right hand of the majesty on high. That terminology, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That is kingly, royal language. That means that this son of God who fulfills these these three Old Testament prophets, uh, offices of prophet, because God speaks to us through him, and priest, he made purification for his sins, and king, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Jesus. And it emphasizes, going back to the triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21, it emphasizes that uh, the triumphal entry led to the cross, and that led to the resurrection, which led to the ascension in Acts chapter 1, and which we read about here as well. Jesus ascended into heaven and then uh, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This was Jesus' coronation when he, when he was officially enthroned on his throne in heaven as the king of the kingdom. And unless you need any more um, proof of that, if you skip forward to verse 8, here is a citation from uh, Psalm 45. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So in verse 3, when it says that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, he sat down on his own throne. Jesus has been enthroned. He's ruling from his throne in heaven. And there he has divine power because uh, through him, God created the world and Jesus himself upholds the universe by the word of his power. And there he is exercising that universal divine power from his throne in heaven, this throne of majesty. And by the way, a key part of Christ's ruling and reigning from his throne in heaven is his subduing his enemies. If you uh, skip further down in Hebrews chapter 1 to verse 13, the writer of the book of Hebrews has already quoted from Psalm 45 in verses 8 and 9. Now he's going to quote here in verse 13, he's going to quote from Psalm 110 and verse 1. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's one of the things that King Jesus is doing from his throne. He's subduing his enemies. He's not destroying his enemies, but he's subduing them. God, through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, is causing his enemies to become a footstool for his feet. And uh, we don't have time to look there. We did it this morning during the prayer meeting. But in Psalm 110, it goes on to say that his people are made willing in the day of his power. That's what happens when God exercises his, uh, uh, his omnipotent, divine, gracious power in our hearts and minds. He makes us willing. He doesn't destroy us. He doesn't uh, drag us kicking and screaming into Christ's kingdom, but he conquers our stubborn wills. He makes us willing in the day of his power so that we willingly become Christ's footstool at his feet. We love to serve King Jesus.
us. We love to submit to Christ's lordship. And that is an exercise of his uh, powerful majesty. This is what Jesus is doing in, in heaven from his throne. Not only that, but he is with his people as they obey the Great Commission. Look at the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And notice verse 18, first of all. And Jesus came and said to them, his disciples who had uh, assembled to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This again is royal language. A king has authority. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's nowhere within God's domain that Jesus lacks authority. He's the king. He's the king over all creation. Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords. He has all authority over the entire realm of the kingdom of God. No exceptions. And what is that authority supposed to be used for? Notice what he goes on to command his disciples in the Great Commission itself. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We need the authority of King Jesus to do this because we're foreigners in a strange land. We're living in a world that is in opposition to the authority of God and the King, Jesus, the Son of God. And so we need the authority of Jesus to go before us and to do what we've already seen from Psalm 110, to subdue his enemies, to conquer his enemies, so that the Great Commission can actually be fulfilled. And the fact that we are here in this place today, and many of us, maybe most of us, we're disciples of King Jesus, and we have been baptized in his name, and we're being taught to obey, to observe all things that he has commanded us, and that this church and every other church that believes the Bible and preaches the gospel exists today. This is all evidence that Jesus is on his throne, that he is indeed King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this is a reminder, by the way, that the Great Commission is the main thing that Christians and churches are supposed to be all about. Everything else is subservient to that. And don't forget, the Great Commission is taking place right now. Because even if you've already been made a disciple, and even if you've already been baptized, you're still being taught to observe all that Christ has commanded you, that this is the basis of the teaching ministry of the church. Everything else is subservient to this. But notice that Christ is not a distant king sitting on some far-off throne somewhere in the, in the universe, detached from the daily lives of his people. 
No. Jesus is a present king. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He's with us to help us and empower us to obey the Great Commission. He doesn't command anything from his people that he doesn't also enable us to fulfill. This is our gracious, all-powerful king. This is the king whom we serve. Well, not only that, but Jesus is also redeeming and forgiving sinners as our king. He's redeeming and forgiving sinners. Look forward in the New Testament to Colossians. One part of the Go Eat Popcorn uh, set of books. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. Listen to what the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to write. It says there that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So notice again, this is kingdom royal language. We're talking about the kingdom of the son of God who's none other than Jesus. So this is what is going on in the name of the kingdom of, of Jesus. And this is a very important thing for us to remember. There are two kingdoms in this world. There's the domain of darkness and there's the kingdom of King Jesus who's the son of God. And we're told in the Bible that we're all naturally born into the domain of darkness. We're, we're all uh, sons of wrath by nature. It's a really harsh reality, but that's what we're told in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, David said about himself that he was conceived in iniquity. That doesn't mean that his mother was sinning when David was conceived, but it means that even from his conception, David had inherited a sinful nature. And that's true of all of us. And so we're brought into this world with a, a propensity, a bias, a bent towards evil, like lying and stealing and being selfish and fighting and arguing. That's the domain of darkness. And then this is what God does when God saves us. God translates us from that domain of darkness, that domain which is our natural domain because of sin, he translates us or delivers us from that uh, domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved son. It's only those two kingdoms. And in the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ is Lord, and those who are his subjects, those who are members of that kingdom, recognize Jesus as king, obey him as Lord, and by the way, worship him as God. And that raises a question right away, doesn't it? Which kingdom are you a subject in? Remember, there's only two. Either you are now presently in the domain of darkness in which you're, you're following the, the prince of the air, the, the course of this world. You're, you're living your own life, your way, following your own common sense. Or you're in 
the kingdom of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And Jesus is your king. Doesn't mean you're sinless. Doesn't mean there's no more rebellion left in your heart. But Jesus is your king. It's a good question to ask. Who's your king? Which kingdom are you a subject in? But that's not all that Paul writes here. He goes on to say in verse 14, concerning this, uh, this king of this kingdom, this beloved son of God, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And now the focus is on Good Friday. Now the focus goes from the triumphal entry, which was a public declaration of the kingship of Jesus, uh, and it goes to Good Friday, the death of Jesus on the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, that is when and where and how he redeemed us. When he died on the cross, the Bible tells us it wasn't because of anything that he had done, because he knew no sin. He's the holy, harmless, undefiled Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for our sins. He died as our substitute. Our transgressions, our sins were laid on him. He was bruised, he was crushed for our iniquity, the Bible tells us. And because Jesus shed his blood for us, he laid down his life for us, he purchased us, he purchased our, um, our salvation, he redeemed us. And it's on that basis that God can forgive us. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the redemption of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross, there's no forgiveness. Because God is holy and righteous. He does not just sweep our sins under the rug. He forgives because his son redeems. And so, how wonderful, how glorious that we not only serve King Jesus, but we serve Jesus who is the Redeemer King. There we were in the domain of darkness, every one of us, sinning and accumulating guilt that hell had to be dealt with. And so there's our King himself, Jesus, going to the cross in our place, redeeming us so that we can be forgiven and therefore justly transferred into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. It's a glorious message. He's a glorious Redeemer King. In the fourth place, what's King Jesus doing today? He's building his church. And I know this is a really familiar passage, but let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 16. And we should begin in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am. And Simon Peter, speaking for the disciples, replied, you are the Christ, 
the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When Jesus said, you are Peter, it's a play on words, uh, his name is Cephas in Aramaic, which means rock or Petros in the Greek. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. First of all, just to dispel um, how the Roman Catholic Church has historically twisted this passage, Jesus did not appoint Peter here as the first pope. First of all, when you look throughout the rest of the New Testament, Jesus, uh, Peter, excuse me, never functions as the Pope. The, the, the rest of the disciples don't submit to Peter. Peter was an apostle. And, and all of the apostles, by the way, remember, um, we, we are, as the church, we are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Well, Peter is part of that foundation of the church because he is an apostle. And there's no doubt that Peter was a leader among leaders. That's why when Jesus asked this question, but who do you say that I am? It's Peter who speaks up. Peter was a leader among leaders, but that's a very different thing than saying that uh, Peter was the Pope, or that uh, Peter was the vicar of Christ, which is what the claim is of the Roman Catholic Church regarding the Pope, the vicar of Christ. By the way, who is the vicar, the representative of Christ today? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the vicar of Christ, not the Pope, but regardless what is Jesus saying here then? Well, remember what um, Peter had already said. Jesus blessed Peter, not because he's Peter and he's the first pope, but because of his confession of faith. He confessed Jesus as Lord. He confessed Jesus as the promised Messiah, and then Jesus says, well, you're blessed, Peter, because you didn't come up with this on your own. And no ordinary person revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. Your knowledge of who I am, Jesus, even that is a gift of God's grace. Well, this is what happens in the gospel. This is what the kingdom of God is all about. This is what the church is all about. Jesus' point was not that he would build his church on the person of Peter, but on Peter's confession of faith in Christ, which itself is an expression of God's grace. And so think about it. From then until now, and until Jesus comes again, Jesus will build his church one living stone at a time as redeemed sinners like Peter are brought by the grace of God to trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then as he promises at the end of verse 18, even hell itself will not be able to stop Jesus from building his church. And so think again about church history. Think about the Roman Empire. For centuries, the Roman Empire did try to stop Jesus from building his church. And then throughout 
church history. There have been various false teachers and false prophets and false Christs. There have been kings and kingdoms who've who've tried to destroy the church. And then in recent times, there was the Third Reich. There was the Iron Curtain. Today, there's Vladimir Putin. There's Kim Jong-un in North Korea. There's the Chinese Communist Party. And in our own country, there's cancel culture, big tech, and yes, even the Disney Company. None of them will ever be able to stop King Jesus from building his church. This is what Jesus is doing from his throne in heaven. He's building his church. And even that's not all. Number five, he's receiving his heritage. He's receiving his heritage. Look in Psalm 2. I'll go ahead and read starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, and by the way, who is the Lord's anointed? It's the Christ, the Messiah. And that's what Peter's confession was. You are the Christ. You are the Lord's anointed. Well, here's what the, how the nations rage, and here's how the rulers of the nations take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Here's what they say. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What's God's response? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And now the focus seems to shift to that king, to the Lord's anointed one. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. That doesn't refer to the origination of Jesus because he's eternal. I believe this refers to the resurrection of Jesus when according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And by the way, this would be in fulfillment of God's ancient promise to Abraham. When he promised to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and more, you will be the father of many nations. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here is God promising to his anointed, promising to his son who is on his throne, I will make the nations your heritage. Well, what are these nations? Well, from Romans chapter 11, we have seen that the nations mean the Gentiles, all of the nations of the world. In other words, not just national Israel. All of the nations are his heritage. And notice too, by the way, in verse 9. So in Psalm 2, it begins with uh, the nations raging. 
and their rulers taking counsel together in rebellion against the Lord and his anointed. And then we read in verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And probably the ultimate fulfillment of that is when Jesus comes again, and according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he's going to come in vengeance and wrath and he will destroy all of his enemies. But until then, verse 9 is still being fulfilled. Because when he breaks them with a rod of iron, how does he do that? If you look forward into Psalm 110 real quickly, Psalm 110, it's a really great parallel passage to Psalm 2. Psalm 110 is the uh, most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. Jesus quotes it concerning himself. Notice in uh, Psalm 110, verses 1 through 3, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And as we have seen, that doesn't mean destroying or annihilating his memories, his enemies, excuse me. It means subduing his enemies, conquering his enemies, bringing them into subjection to his rule, to his throne. And then how does that take place? Do they get brought into his kingdom? Do they get transformed into his footstool, as it were, kicking and screaming the whole time? No, read verses two and three. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And then there's this quick statement. There's no transition from from verse 2 to verse 3. It simply says, Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Well, where does this statement about your people will offer themselves freely come from? the psalmist has been talking about the same people all along. Because we all once were God's enemies. We were the ones who were shaking our fists against God and and King Jesus. We were the ones whom God has made uh, Christ's footstool. We were the ones who have been made um, volunteers by the power of God. We're the ones, we are God's people, who by God's saving grace, who through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, have offered ourselves and are offering ourselves freely to serve King Jesus. Do you see that? Psalm 2, where Jesus is receiving his heritage. Psalm 110, where his enemies are being made his footstool, they they go together. They're being fulfilled right now. Jesus has fulfilled this aspect of his kingly rule in our conversion. And he's continuing to fulfill this kingly aspect of his rule as we are more and more being made subject to his lordship as we're giving up more and more of our stubbornness and self-will and saying, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is receiving his heritage today as he sits on his throne in heaven. And even that's not all. Jesus King Jesus is giving gifts to his people. 
Look in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 7, Paul says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And this is a reference to spiritual gifts, which he develops in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And spiritual gifts have been given to every single believer according to the measure of Christ's gift. And notice what he says in verse 8. Therefore it says, and here Paul quotes from Psalm 68 and verse 18. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Here's another kingly passage with its roots in the prophecy of the book of Psalms from the Old Testament. Here's a reference to Jesus' ascension. So he ascended on high, and we've, we already know because we've seen it from Hebrews chapter 1 and other passages that when Jesus ascended on high, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But here in Psalm 68 and verse 18, this is what happens when a king, and in particular Israel's king, conquers Israel's enemies. It's the spoils of war. He gives gifts to his people. And the fact that his people receive these spoils of, of war, these gifts, that's an indication of the fact that the king, in fact, has conquered his enemies. The king is on his throne. The king's kingdom has extended its boundaries to encompass this, this new outpost. And so, putting that together with the context of Ephesians chapter 4, the fact that there are gifts among Christ's people is evidence of the fact that Jesus, the victorious king, is on his throne. The fact that we are doing what we're doing right now, that somebody organized nursery workers to be available today, and that there are nursery workers in the nursery. By the way, I'm supposed to announce we need more nursery workers. And that somebody cleaned this building. And that there was a music team that came on Friday and practiced. And praise God for our new drummer, by the way, huh? When Luke said he was leaving, I thought, ah, we're losing the world's greatest church drummer. And within days, I hear, oh, Lisa Carraway plays drums. That's King Jesus. The fact that there were Sunday school teachers serving today, that there's a music ministry up here. Do you get the idea? All of these things that come together and have to take place in order for this to take place, they're all because of these, these gifts of grace that Christ has given to his people. The fact that anyone has been ministered to this week from Christians, prayed for, encouraged, served, helped. All of this and unspeakably more evidences, proofs that King Jesus is on his throne and that he's conquered his enemies and our enemies. That's why he's able and willing to bless his people the way that he is. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus Christ is king. And even that's not all. What's Jesus doing today? 
on his throne in heaven? Well, he's preparing to come again. Look in Acts chapter 1. Notice verses 9 through 11. Jesus has just been talking to his disciples and he's promised them for example in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's the means, by the way, by which King Jesus the anointed son of God from his throne receives his enemies as his footstool. It's through the instrumentality of the message of the gospel that is proclaimed by his people as they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. But then notice what Luke says next in verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. By the way, a brother asked earlier this week about angels and what they look like. Well, apparently they're able to look like men, like these two men, quotation marks, they're angels. Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way from heaven, from clouds, bodily, visibly. He will come in the same way as you go as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is on his throne, building his church, doing all these things until the last sinner whom God had determined before the foundation of the world to be saved is actually saved. When the last spiritual stone is added to this spiritual structure, the church, then Jesus will come again. And in the meantime, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In anticipation of that day, the Apostle John at the, book of, the end of the book of Revelation said, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So this is what King Jesus is doing now. And more, maybe this has triggered more thoughts in your mind, more passages from the scripture in your mind. But this is not just a traditional thing. It's not just a Holy Week thing. It's not just a children's Bible story thing. It is a real thing. It's the most real thing imaginable. It's as real as anything else is real. That Jesus is king and is ruling and reigning from his throne in heaven. And so, brothers and sisters in the Lord, Believers, be encouraged. And as we've gone through the book of Romans, there's been many opportunities for us to be reminded of this fact. Be encouraged. Jesus Christ, your Redeemer King, is ruling and reigning from his throne. And guess what? In spite of outward appearances, all is well in Christ's kingdom. Be encouraged. Don't lose hope. And if you're an unbeliever, you should also be encouraged that this king is the Redeemer King. And he's a Redeemer King who doesn't keep his distance from sinners like us. 
but he actually invites sinners like us, sinners like you, come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, heavy laden, and you will find rest. This is that same King Jesus. He's the one who died on the cross for sinners like you, sinners like me. He doesn't say, come to me when you've cleaned up your act. Come to me when you've turned over a new leaf. Come to me when you've laid the basement, the foundation of your own righteousness. No, he says, come to me as you are because I've done all that's necessary, all that's required to save you, to redeem you. He died on the cross, not for righteous people, not for godly people, but precisely for sinners, precisely for enemies of God, which we all are by nature. But he does say, come to me, put your trust in him, lay down, Lay down your weapons of rebellion and in your heart, by faith, submit yourself to the lordship of King Jesus. In the language of Psalm 2, kiss the son. Love him, worship him, serve him, be saved by him, even today. Let's pray. Lord, we... Thank you for our gracious prophet, priest, and king, our glorious Redeemer King, Jesus. We thank you for who he is and all that he has done to purchase and secure the salvation of his people. And would you help us, Lord, to serve him more faithfully, to know him more intimately, to worship him more intelligently because of what you have taught us from your word today. And would you save souls in our midst? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.